0: Welcome back to the Arbitration
1: Station. Uh, quite possibly the worst arbitration clause I've ever read in my life. Okay, ready? One, yeah. two, three. England. Russia!
0: Oh, <laughs> shit. Well, of course! He's gonna get disbarred in two seconds after all of this. Yeah, so if I were the sole arbitrator... It's called, give him the old razzle-dazzle, Joel. You just, you know, if it sounds
1: good, maybe they won't... The listen listen. Was y Arriba! <laughs> Hello and welcome to The Arbitration Station. My name is Jowell dahl And I am Brian Kodek. And we are your co-host for another episode of The Arbitration Station podcast, covering both commercial and investment arbitration. 66% serious substance and 33% general ponderings and musings of the arbitration world and 1% flu symptoms. (coughs) Excuse me. (laughs) Where in the world are you, Joel? I am back in the cabin. Where in the world are you, Brian? I am in my
0: apartment in London, back from our conference in Stockholm, where I contracted the worst cough, incessant cough flu ever. So, I, listeners, I apologize for the acoustics of the room and also the nasalness of my voice.
1: I'm just happy it's, it's not me. I mean, I, I suffer with you. I thought I had the same issue after the conference, but it turns out I was probably just a little bit hungover and overworked, and 36 <laughs> hours later, I was good again. And underpaid. Uh <laughs> That's right. Just to quickly
0: go over the people helping us operate this podcast, first and foremost, this season is running on the pure steam of the Investment Arbitration Reporter, also known as the IA Reporter, which is our sponsor for season three. The IA Reporter is an online service focused on international investment law. For more than 10 years, IA Reporters offered up, up to the minute coverage of the new arbitrations, recent decisions, and notable policy developments, one of which will be quoted in this episode. Their team of expert analysts offer informed and incisive analysis, as well as investigative reporting on cases and developments that are otherwise confidential. To find out why the world's leading law firms, universities, and government agencies subscribe to the IA Reporter, visit iareporter.com. Thank you, Luke Eric Peterson.
1: And now you can mute and cough for for five seconds, (laughs) if you'd like. We are not in Stockholm where we intended to record this podcast, and that is on you, I think, Brian Karik. It's not on me, and it's not on the SEC, which generously offered us a room to record, which would have been amazing, because in Stockholm we met Dimitri, our, one of our research assistants who hasn't formally started working yet, but who was in Stockholm, so we thought we'd rope him in as a silent observer when we recorded at the SEC, but then obviously we did not record. I canceled yes yes you did and i won't let you through bitter doesn't look good on you joel (laughs) bitter doesn't
0: match those pants
1: uh that is true okay that i mean it it was probably just as well actually for various reasons first of all we're cutting it really close by recording so close to the publishing of the podcast it's almost live we're recording just before we have to publish this which will allow us to address news which we uh, rarely have the opportunity to do when we record well in advance. And I have some new C items I want to take up with you. And it also meant that rather than recording with you, I could attend a seminar at the SEC last week. You're welcome. Yes. Thank you very much for that. Because <laughs> it was actually a good one. Uh, I'm saying actually as if I was expecting something else. But sometimes well, seminars are exactly what you expect them to be. But this was uh, surprisingly good. It was called Not in the Rules. Uh, and it was the four secretaries general. And I'm happy. Every time I get to demonstrate my grammar by saying that in plural on the podcast, oh. four secretaries general, mm-hmm. uh, from WIAC in Vienna, DIS in Cologne, Milan Chamber of Arbitration, and the SEC as the host, discussing discussing <laughs> disgusting, <laughs> <clears throat> discussing various things that you cannot learn just from the arbitration rules. Wow, that's so, really
0: that's great. I didn't was, know that it was going to be comparative like that.
1: Yeah, it was. It was the four of them and then uh, a partner from your former firm in Stockholm asking them questions. And uh, the audience was also very engaged and talking about, you know, informal practices and and other stuff that they see in their practice. And the audience interaction really made it a a really, really good seminar, I must say. So I enjoyed that. But one thing specifically gave me an, an idea for a crowdsourced arbitration station segment, which I haven't discussed with you. So let's see if you're if you're on board with this. Because uh, Stefano Azzali from Milan, the Secretary General from Milan, mentioned that he used to collect bad arbitration clauses. He has a file oh, that's funny! in his office. The file is marked Bestiarios, you know, uh, derived from beasts or made by beasts. <laughs> and uh, since we had so much fun trying to comprehend the Stormy Daniels arbitration clause, I thought we should invite listeners to submit arbitration clauses that we could then collectively laugh at in a segment devoted entirely to bad arbitration clauses what do you think about that that's
0: a great idea that's like cakes that were made off pinterest that didn't quite make it
1: yes yes exactly and we can all bask in the glory of not having written those clauses yeah
0: it's like watching the kardashians you're just like this train wreck i would never do that (laughs)
1: Yeah, exactly. It makes for good for good entertainment and for good audio, I think. So let's uh, put out a call. I'll put it out on Twitter as well, but let's say it on air where most of our listeners are, obviously. If you do have a favorite arbitration clause from your own practice or from your own studies, send it to the arbitration station at com or tweet at us if you happen to be on Twitter. And then at some point down the line, we'll spend 20 minutes on other people's lack of drafting skills.
0: Yeah, and if you also had had that arbitration clause in practice and how you navigated it that would also be interesting to know as well
1: oh yeah absolutely and obviously we'll discuss it in a generic form so that parties or council or other identities and details won't be disclosed
0: yes we'll sign ndas if necessary
1: <laughs> yeah if, if it's if it's good enough uh, if it's a bad enough clause i'm happy to sign whatever in order to get to talk about it right nothing can beat the stormy daniels clause though that has to be the worst it's pretty good arbitration <laughs> So what else is new on your front? Did you have any other news items? I have so many. Uh, oh. Because, because a lot of things are, are happening. Rattle them off, Joel. Yeah, for example. And this is not because we are supported by them, but news in my world at least tends to come from IU Reporter. As which, does mine. Yeah, okay. Then we're in the same boat. <laughs> this, this morning, I Reporter published that the German Supreme Court has now set aside the ACMEA award. So it's uh, episode 294 of the Akmea saga. It's turning into a Days of Our Lives almost. Yeah,
0: just catching up be- on my soaps, my Akmea soaps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, I think there we will see some more uh, episodes in that so p- pretty pretty quickly, actually, uh, because now there is no more Akmea award. The, this is, of course, the original Akmea versus Slovakia award, which uh, sort of initiated this whole thing uh, after the... German court asked the European Court of Justice in Luxembourg, they have now listened to the European Court of Justice in Luxembourg and set aside the award, finding that there was no arbitration agreement. Hmm. But in theory, especially uh, German courts being German, they could have found another way out and actually upheld the award on some other ground and decided to ignore and or sidestep and or distinguish what the European court said. But they didn't. No, they didn't, which I think was predictable uh, in many ways. We also have a separate story. The Uncentral Work is charging ahead. I don't know if you've been following this because I I was there in Vienna a few weeks ago, but unlike last year, I did not report on the podcast from the discussions. And I don't think we have even discussed it, you and I. No, we haven't. Off air. It's interesting now because um, formally and on paper, there is now a consensus, a global agreement almost, that reform of investor state arbitration is desirable. It has been decided on various points, at least.
0: So controversial. (laughs) It took a few years to get
1: there. (laughs) We want to change things. Okay. Yes, but I mean, as you can imagine, (laughs) I I would imagine if you were in the room, you would be standing there up on the podium. There isn't really a podium, but you'll be sitting by a desk with a microphone arguing that reform isn't desirable. Arbitration is fine. Leave it as it is. Everybody's happy. And there were, of course, a few states who expressed stuff like that in more diplomatic ways Mm -hmm. Uh, so it it wasn't a given that the states would agree that reform is desirable but now of course is where everything that is interesting uh, is about to happen next meeting is in new york in the spring hopefully if the podcast i have no idea what that will be maybe towards the end of the season we can do something then because now they'll start to, to discuss the rock and roll stuff, i.e. how should we reform it and what should we replace it with if we uh, remove it or uh, should we just reform it incrementally and you know, this, is, this is the interesting thing right. where all the details have to be hammered out
0: Absolutely So when's the next one?
1: Uh, first week of April and since you and I are going to Washington DC with a podcast yes. in the middle of April uh, maybe we'll I don't know, you have an actual job now So maybe it might be hard for you to take two weeks off and hang out on the East Coast. But I I was thinking I should do a U.S. tour, assuming that I have my Ph.D. at that point, which is absolutely the plan.
0: Could I be an observer if I were to take time off? At Ancetral? Yeah.
1: Uh, You'd have to ask Ancetral. It's a bit uh, murky what the rules are. And you couldn't do it just yourself. You would have to be attached to some sort of organization.
0: Arbitration station, Hello.
1: Ah, true. You get a press pass.
0: <laughs> oh. And a,
1: and a hat with a little press
0: sign. That's ill fitting and and short and says, Make America Great Again on the front.
1: Yeah. Well, let's explore that and see how it works out. Worst case, I, I would imagine you, you'll you be happy with a week in New York because you're American. True. Absolutely. Well, good. There's a lot happening. That's it on the, on the news front.
0: Well done. Uh, I think I have no news on the news front because I've just been traipsing around Stockholm trying to develop business and and now I have a filing coming up. So I'm... no, my head is under the water at the moment.
1: Oh, OK. Boohoo, hoo
0: (laughs) feel sorry for me well let's go into the segments that we have for today the first segment uh which kind of piqued our interest because the keynote speaker of the conference joel and i were just at um was mark canter who talked about corruption and international arbitration and he compared how corruption is dealt with in international arbitration versus how it's dealt with and in front of the world bank um And uh, so we were talking about corruption and thinking it would be a good segment for the podcast, even though it doesn't come up often uh, in international arbitrations. It does come up and um, it can it kind of blends into this like illegality within arbitration as far as criminal uh, disputes or criminal allegations. So um, it can be broadened um, into into a different context.
1: Speaking of conferences, before we move on to the other two segments, I just we have to address this because we were both at the conference and we were both speaking at the conference, which also meant that our bios were circulated in the conference programs. Yes, I were. noticed that you don't mention the Arbitration Station podcast on Ooh, your bio.
0: Awkward. Which made me... F- you look. like me more than I like you. No,
1: <laughs> they took it from my website. That's why. They took it from the firm oh, website. Oh, you mean you don't have it on your website? I'm a bit embarrassed because my uh My bio was basically Joel is working on a PhD, which which he hasn't finished, and he also has a podcast. Whereas yours was like uh, has acted under various rules, blah 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 blah, <laughs> represented states, blah, blah blah blah, made you look like a a lawyer and me like uh, a nineteen year old. I I yeah, they took it directly
0: from the website. Otherwise, I would do that. But maybe I should also include it in the firm website. I'll ask my firm.
1: Yeah, please do.
0: Okay, sorry, Joel. <laughs> Uh, this is a very unilateral relationship. Awkward.
1: Yes, uh, it really is. But that's fine, I guess. And speaking of unilateral relationships, you then, on the second substantive segment, talked to Philippe Pinsol, you know?
0: uh,
1: who I obviously didn't meet because then I would know how to pronounce his name confidently. I wasn't there when you spoke to him about interim measures, right? Exactly. Um this was recorded a while ago
0: but um obviously still relevant and he goes into kind of new permutations of intermeasure issues uh that he has witnessed in his extensive practice
1: at with Emmanuel Emanuel. exactly mm. and then finally Joel what do we have for happy fun time we have a happy fun time about local council work suggested by Dimitri our researcher who could not attend this recording because of Brian's busy schedule <laughs> <laughs> and so we will talk about sort of the uh, uh, biosphere of law firms in arbitration, and and what it's like to work as local counsel. How do you retain local counsel? Uh, what are they good at? And also, uh, as a, as a teaser, I think I will cue that segment up by referencing a discussion we had when we met in London, and I uh, embarrassed and angered a few other arbitration lawyers when i said we tend to think that we are better than local lawyers which nobody agreed with Oi.
0: yeah you, that that did get heated at that moment yes and it <laughs> might get the <heated> <laughs> uh, all right well with that teaser let's move on to the first segment So now we will be talking about corruption in international arbitration, the sexy side of arbitration. Uh, corruption comes up in many different ways and at many different times in an arbitration. And so what we're going to do in this segment is kind of bring up some of the issues, because the problem is, is that there isn't an international consensus on how to deal with corruption issues. What's the effect of a corruption allegation or conviction in an international arbitration? And when all of this is supposed to happen? So... And true arbitration station format, we will be bringing up the general ponderings, um, but maybe not giving you concrete answers. Um, First, uh, we can talk about jurisdiction and admissibility, where states or state agencies sometimes invoke corruption as a jurisdictional defense against a claim by an investor under an investment treaty. And the defense is essentially that an investment procured by illegal means, i.e. fraud or corruption, is not an investment at all, and accordingly, a tribunal constituted to consider such a claim either says that they don't have jurisdiction ratione materiae, or even if they have jurisdiction, the
1: claims are not admissible. Mm, this is the old uh, must be in accordance with host state laws, or must comply with host state laws, or whatever most investment treaties.
0: Exactly, survive. exactly. So th- it actually so there's the, a couple reasons. That's one of them. And another one is that it violates the consent of the host state that they would never agree to protect such uh, such investments if they were in violation of state law. So it goes to the arbitration agreement. Um, but then, as you say, there's uh, it doesn't fall. It falls outside the definition because it um, is not in accordance with state law. But then there's also general uh, principles of law that you could use, such as you know the unclean hands doctrine or doctrine of good faith. Doctrine of good faith, good faith, um, to say that, you know, someone should not benefit from their own wrongdoing. Uh, and then you also have that international investment law must respect the integrity of the national law of the host state. So if you have an international tribunal ignoring issues of corruption, then you're basically ignoring the domestic jurisdictions, determination of, um, illegality, uh, on relating to a specific investment. um, so it should be noted that several tribunals have held that corruption can only affect the rights of investors to make recourse to arbitration if this was involved, the corruption was involved in making the initial investment. So what, what does that mean? Well, it, the corruption has to do, you know, induce the investment to be made. For example, if my investment is a construction project and I got the construction permits, or the license or the rights to the construction project by the state by influencing one of the state agencies via a bribe or otherwise then that would be corruption in the making of the investment whereas i legally procured the rights to begin this construction project and during the construction project i'm paying off police officers not to look into the bad practices of my workers for example So that would be kind of a subsequent act that wouldn't necessarily affect the jurisdiction or the admissibility of the
1: claims. It could maybe be a counterclaim. No, if it falls under the jurisdiction of the treaty. Well, it
0: depends. Yeah, it depends if that has to do with one of the main claims, right? So if one of your claims has to do with a delay of construction, then your counterclaim, or you know, not receiving a permit to to continue construction or something like that, then your counterclaim could could definitely arise out of that yeah so if we look at this legality requirement in the bit that you brought up uh basically the idea is that an investment that is procured by corruption is not made in accordance with the laws of the host state uh presuming that corruption is illegal in that host state which it should be and is thus not an investment protected under the bit and thank you to our researcher who found the first case in which corruption was specifically uh, specifically was a successful jurisdictional defense, was Metal Tech v. Uzbekistan in 2013. In that case, um, it concerned an investment by an Israeli investor in Uzbekistan. And I'm not proud of my brethren for doing this, but um, he uh, <laughs> there was some corrupt act. The article in the Israel Uzbekistan BIT read that the term investments shall comprise of any any kind of asset implemented in accordance with the laws and regulations of the contracting party, in whose territory the investment is made. So then Uzbekistan informed the tribunal during the proceedings that there was a corruption investigation into certain allegations of corruption kickbacks um, in the total of of a few million dollars from Uzmetal, the investor's Uzbekistani entity, to the Uzbek Uzbek government. So what happened is that this Israeli, Israeli investor paid off um, some unnamed consultants, which was the brother of the former prime minister, the for- a formal government official, and a pharmaceutical advisor. And what the respondent claimed was that these kickbacks were intended to secure the approval of the investment in exchange for favorable treatment. So there you have the corruption affecting the investment, quote-unquote, made. Uh, then MetalTech disputed these allegations but ordered the tribunal to produce evidence um, to look at the nature and services provided by each of the consultant, which consultant provided the services and when the service was provided. And the tribunal, which was made up of two out of th- two out of the three members of the tribunal were podcast guests. I'll have, you know, Gabriel, oh, Gabrielle Kaufman Kohler, Klaus van Wobbe, two guests and John Townsend, who we should also get on this podcast. Uh, they held that metaltech's failure to produce evidence ordered by the tribunal and the presidents of quote unquote red flags um, constituted an inference of corruption um mm. so they found that it was that the investment was tainted by illegal activities and that the law is clear that in such situations the investors should be deprived of protection and consequently the host state avoids any potential liability so they said that they had no jurisdiction rationing materie
1: that's interesting it touches upon something that i wanted to ask a legal point that is it's rather a, you know it's more a question of applicable law than anything else that it doesn't have to necessarily be the case that it is established as a matter of domestic law that there was corruption involved but the tribunal can itself, as part of its analysis, its factual analysis, determine that there was corruption. So in this case, Uzbekistan didn't have to show that their own courts or their own investigation had found that there was uh, corruption. As a matter of Uzbeki law, the, the tribunal sort of made their own determination because they would have to, you know, establish whether or not there was an investment. Or as part of that exercise, they looked at corruption independently.
0: I mean, if you look at the um, if you look at, especially in this case, it was bribes to the state, then it's going to be really difficult for the state to then crack down on its own agencies for elements of corruption. And then to wait for those proceedings to finish uh, while the investment, arbit- you know, the investment arbitration proceedings are ongoing, then it would never happen. Um, but it does become persuasive evidence when it does. Um, it definitely is not a requirement um, in the internet investment treaty context.
1: I'm guessing you'll segment into this pretty uh, quickly. There the evidentiary issues involved, because it sounds very much like a he said, she said situation, but transferred to international arbitration. It
0: does. Um, But before we go into that, I will talk to you about the ICSA convention, because even where the state's consent is not conditioned on the legality of an investment by the BIT, some tribunals have interpreted 25.1 of the ICSA convention as implying a legality requirement. Um, and this is. There's. Tribunals have diverged on whether the quote-unquote definition of investment under 25.1 implies a legality requirement. So you have.
1: It's sort of. A, it's a parallel to the Salini discussion, essentially. Yeah. The the article says itself says nothing, but we might construe the word investment so as to cover some things that are not expressly mentioned.
0: Exactly. So you have you know, like the Phoenix action case where the tribunal held that the purpose of international mechanism of protection of investment through exit arbitration cannot be to protect investments made in violation of the laws of the host state. Okay. So just kind of this good faith idea. But then if you have the, the Sabafakis, case. Um, v, that sounds awful. Uh, v Turkey, they held that the principles of good faith and legality cannot be incorporated into the definition of 25.1 without doing violence to the language of the exit convention. So you have kind of the textual analysis versus the contextual analysis. Um, so the tribunals have been divergent in how this kind of plays into it. And then you have some tribunals, in rare instances, that even when you're not in the ICSI convention, or you do not think the ICSI convention covers it, and you do not have something in the BIT that international public policy could impose a requirement for uh, legality on the investment. And there you have World Duty Free, Plama v. Bulgaria, and Nikovi v. Bangladesh. Um, World Duty Free is the famous one where the guy brought in suitcases of corn, Right. Um, And left it in the room and got the contract that way. And the tribunal dismissed all of the investors' claims as inadmissible, as bribery is contrary to international public policy of the most, if not all states, or, to use another formula, to transnational public policy. And that claims based on contracts of corruption or on contracts obtained by corruption cannot be upheld by an arbitral tribunal. So that's kind of the idea there. Now, proving corruption, as Joel hinted at, um, while corruption may in principle defeat a claim, it remains a subject of some debate, and that was discussed at the conference as to how a tribunal is to prove that there is corruption, and in particular, what the standards and the brute of proof
1: are. Uh, uh, it is just a uh, matter of uh, principle. It's not the tribunal that has to prove anything. No, no, it no. no. Did I say tribunal? <laughs> Yeah,
0: no, 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 it's it's up to the parties. But I mean, who's has who bears the burden of proof between the parties and what the standards are? That's what we're going to discuss.
1: Oh, yeah, that's interesting. That's a that's a whole ball game, I guess.
0: Yeah. And there is I thought there was a, a, a quite a general consensus on this. But I, I guess in getting receiving more research, it, it isn't necessarily the case. Yeah. Um, You know, some tribunals appear to require just a balance of probabilities for establishing corruption, so that's kind of a case-by-case basis. Um, Some decisions have suggested that it is the respondent's duty to prove clear and convincing evidence of corruption if it is to succeed on a defense on that basis. So the investor brings a claim, the respondent state says that there was elements of corruption in obtaining that investment, the respondent has to prove with clear and convincing evidence that such corruption exists. So if you look at the Frappert case, they the tribunal there said that in view of the consequences of corruption on the investor's ability to claim treaty protection, evidence must be clear and convincing so as to reasonably make believe that the facts as alleged have occurred. Um, and the tribunal in that case came to the conclusion that the respondent failed to provide clear and convincing evidence regarding fraud. Um <clears throat> Some other tribunals, later tribunals, have suggested that this overstates the burden on the respondent and that the tribunal can rely on circumstantial evidence and implies something close to elements of corruption. And then the burden of proof shifts back to the claimant or the investor who will then have to prove that such corruption did not exist. Hmm. Um, So the Metal Tech Tribunal, as we referenced before, raised these red flags, quote unquote, to infer that there was corruption. In that case, upon receiving allegations of corruption from the respondent, the tribunal then ordered the production of documents relating to the supposed services provided by the fees alleged. As we discussed, um, and they found that these red flags outweighed the inability of the investor to bring up counter-evidence to say that those red flags did not actually imply corruption. So you know it's kind of a rebuttable presumption, right? So the respondent brings up, "Hey, there was corruption here. We have we have reasons to believe." Then it goes on to the other side to prove that corruption did not take place. Feels
1: sensible, I guess, instinctively, although it is uh, always hard to demonstrate that something did not happen.
0: Yeah exactly you're proving if there's a you know a black market any any type of criminality and this is why i said it can be extended beyond corruption charges is that when you're proving something that doesn't that shouldn't exist or is illegal outside of the law then it's difficult to prove that it does happen so the best you can do because especially if you're the one alleging that it happened so you're not party to the corrupt act Uh, you can just only raise red flags and then have the other side prove it. But then how do you prove it, right? How do you... If someone raises this allegation and says, okay, I have reason to believe that there was corruption happening, what kind of evidence could you bring to show that? Testimonial evidence, maybe?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as you mentioned in this Pakistan case, you could, I guess, uh, submit the invoices and explain what they were for and some sort of... uh, Material cover, covering or supporting that claim that this consultant actually did some work. And here we have some, you know, I don't know, photos and receipts and stuff to show that he or she did what we say that they did rather than just took the money and then made things easier for us.
0: Right. And I think it will always just be in proportionality to what the respondent state has brought themselves. Right. So um, yeah. just disproving that one point versus showing that it did not exist whole, you know, wholly. Um, so then the question can become what, ab- okay, well, what about what happens when the domestic court has already looked into this issue? Um, so, you know, some say that the tribunals should be bound by the determination of the host state courts, which to me is a, a black and white, obviously they should do that. But some others say, you know, in the the NICO case that I referenced earlier, the tribunal distinguished the Canadian prosecution of a company official and instead relied on the Supreme Court of Bangladesh's finding that there was no corruption related to the investment. So although the Canadian prosecution of this company official happened, they chose to rely on the Bangladeshi Supreme Court that said no corruption happened. So... Some, there's kind of a weighing of balances. I don't know. I would have to look into this, you know, facts more in that case on like what the prosecution of that company official was, or if they found they pierced the corporate veil just to only uh, attack this official in his independent capacity, or whether he
1: was a representative of the company. I don't know. But um, yeah, and I guess it becomes a question of applicable law once again. Which domestic co state law are we supposed to apply in order to determine if? The investment was procured by corruption yeah in this case i guess it's bangladeshi law rather than canadian law that's true that's true
0: but i mean you know when you're having a a multinational organization with you know boards of directors board of directors that are scattered all over the world um the investigation can can take place anywhere really
1: yeah of course and if your job is to either raise red flags or shoot down red flags depending on which side you're on i guess every every fact could be helpful Yeah, absolutely. And so
0: Callum Agnew, our our researcher, brought up... I don't know if he found this or if he thought of it himself, but I think it's actually a really good point, which is does... So corruption is usually alleged as a defense to whether an investment took place, whether a legal investment took place. Now, usually the corruption has to do with the investor bribing someone in the state if you're in the investment treaty context. So if you have this... You have kind of a perverse incentive on the state to commit acts of corruption or bribery because or accept bribes or accept corruptive activity because if the host state wins because you know they get money and then in the arbitration they can use it as a defense to say that an investment doesn't exist so now they're free from any liability of the entire claim. So if they want to ensure that they won't be covered by the BIT for any potential claims, they should just accept a bribe at some point in the making of the investment.
1: Yeah, have an unofficial policy. Every foreign it's, investor, exactly. Yeah. We, we will, we will implicate them in some sort of bribery. So in case a case comes, we're fine. I thought that was a
0: really good point. I did. You al- did he
1: also give us a solution? No, no, because no, no, it no. sounds tricky. I, I see the the absurd incentive structure, but how do you actually address it?
0: Yeah, I guess we'll have to rely on the, the good nature of public officials.
1: Yes, as I always do.
0: <laughs> sweet. So there's another case with Uzbekistan. Sorry, Uzbekistan. But um, in it's Kim et al. v. Uzbekistan in 2017. This also concerned corruption in in this, the host state. And the tribunal considered a number of jurisdictional challenges by the respondent, including that the investment was vitiated by corruption. The tribunal rejected the argument on the facts, noting that the respondent had failed to prove corruption. But there were a few comments here that are kind of noteworthy. First, they endorsed the view that corruption was only relevant to jurisdiction at the time the investment was made. Um, It did not resolve the standard or burden of proof necessary to prove, only holding that the respondent failed to cross that threshold. Um, they appeared ambivalent on the issue of whether corruption was implied by the ICSA Convention, and they suggested that proportionality need to be considered in corruption defenses, giving the severe effect of such allegations on the rights of the claimants. So then that kind of goes to the solution of this uh, perverse incentives issue, which is basically, well, if there was a small bribe paid to the government official to get, you know, a, a permit to use water at the construction site, does that invalidate or vitiate the entire Investment oh, yeah. by by just that. So if you have a, you know an an element of proportionality, you you may not have the entire claim thrown out. And then there the final case is a pen, is an ongoing case that's happening right now. That that's redundant ongoing happening right now. Um, it's BSRG v Guinea. And if you want to read about it, it's on the IA Reporter. There's the plug. Uh, in this case, Guinea withdrew mining concessions from the Benny Steinmetz Group's resources, BSGR, after allegations that BSGR paid bribes to the previous government to secure those concessions. Um, They were well-documented in the media, including an excellent New Yorker piece, Um, and there were reportedly criminal investigations into BSRG conducted in Guinea in the UK, US, Guinea itself, Switzerland, and Israel. Um, and the underlying concession itself was uh, extremely valuable. It was some of the richest iron deposits in the world while Guinea is one of the poorest countries in the world. And then you have uh, Kaufman Kohler who chaired that this who is chairing this case, uh, who was if you'll remember chairing the metaltech case before. Um, the evidence of the bribery contracts was, considered to be fabricated, notwithstanding that a hearing was already held in the case in which the tribunal accepted two expert findings that there was no evidence of forgery. Um, And then on the law, the alleged payee of the bribe was the fourth wife of the then president, La Sana Conte, um, and BSGR is arguing that she was not a public official and thus any payments made to her were not technically corrupt to invalidate the investment. All right. So it was just kind of a peddling influence, which isn't technically illegal in Guinea, and that's kind of the the main uh, discussion around this is what happens if, uh, you know, a payment here and there under the table or leaving a suitcase full of corn is the culture in the society on in doing business where, well, you need to take out the head of state in order to get your construction project. Um, Approved. You need to take them out to dinner and an all-expenses-paid trip to Dubai in order to get your contract approved. So if that's the going rate right in doing business in that country, then can you really invalidate the claim based off allegations uh, or international, alleg- you know, uh, aspects of of corruption? But
1: but presumably, even if it's culturally accepted, it is still illegal on the books in that country, right? Well, even under domestic law, I guess.
0: Well, in Guinea, if it you know. I don't think it would be that's that's the discussion is that it would if you're just you know influencing the wife of the mm. official is that may not be a corrupt act under the the definition of the state law Yeah okay
1: yeah I see it's not a public official
0: So it gets more blurry in that sense but um so I mean technically I think the takeaway of corruption is uh, it's hard to prove. And that it's usually on the respondent to bring up a prima facie case of corruption and then the burden shifts and then the claimant has to prove that those allegations are um, unsubstantiated or
1: wrong. Looking forward to uh, cases against the US now that you also have a corrupt regime since a few years. (laughs) I'm sure there are a few investments that have been induced. Paul Manafort got $400,000 worth of suits to help somebody get an investment. We'll see what's going to happen in the future.
0: (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to Philip Pinsol. All right. We are sitting here with Philip Pinsol, who is a partner and the head of the arbitration practice group in continental Europe. Is that correct? That's correct. Equin Emmanuel. Welcome to the arbitration station. Uh, Joel couldn't be here with us today because he's stuck in Malmo, but um, I'm sure we're going to have an exciting discussion because we are going to be talking about interim measures. And we talked about on a previous podcast, and I noted for you that we kind of laid the groundwork and the criteria and how to find an interim measure, but I think that was a bit 101 for some of our listeners. So I think we can maybe take it a step further. And as you mentioned before we started recording, that there it's becoming more, of not necessarily a strategy, but maybe sometimes a strategy, but it's kind of uh, a new element that needs to be explored a bit further between practitioners. No, I agree, I mean, um, interim measures have
2: become a tactical tool for players in arbitration, for the parties. So very often you'll see uh, parties uh, bringing a request for interim measures simply to impress the tribunal at the beginning because they think they have a good point and they want right. to press that point, or to gain a tactical advantage against the other side uh, simply because if you start with a victory, uh, that helps. Right. So these are factors that uh, we see uh, parties well advised um, using very often t- uh, to their advantage. Of course, it can work with the other way around if it doesn't work, but very yeah. often it <laughs> does, actually, and you get something out of an interim measure. Um, yesterday, for example, for those of you who follow investment arbitration, um, a, um, an order was released in the Gramercy in Peru, case where um, it's an ancestral case tribunal was seized under the rules uh, with a request for entry measures three distinct requests one uh, not to aggravate the dispute in abstract mm-hmm. two uh, to use the channel of communications of the arbitration to speak to the other party and not the press and three uh, not to interfere with non disputing parties in that case the US government which Gramsci uh, US hedge fund was apparently trying to leverage uh-huh. and the tribunal accepted two of them, uh, not as interim measures, but because of its powers to organize proceedings, essentially, and said, yes, you should not aggravate the dispute. We already told you that. <laughs> Whatever that means. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> two, uh, yes, uh, insofar as this arbitration is concerned, you should use the official channels of communications uh, that were agreed between the parties. That is a way to constrain the mm-hmm. claimant. Uh, and it was very smart on the part of Peru to go through this route of interim measures to obtain this tactical advantage at the beginning. In the very so that's, case, an, yeah. a, that, that's an, an example which I found very telling. Uh, and the order is available uh, on the, most of websites.
0: Right. And I mean, it ha- it's obviously case by case basis. But you're saying that maybe some council is uses it as in their toolbox that they say, OK, well, we'll bring this out because that I mean, that that request is extremely general. And it's almost I mean it the is. status quo argument that you make for any interim measure. It Uh, is, Uh, I I agree. agree. It
2: is what many parties or or council fail to appreciate uh, is that in most, under most rules, um, interim measures are a matter of discretion. Mm -hmm. So it's not like when you're before your local court where you have some legal tests to be satisfied and a type of interim measure that is available before that particular court. Uh, If you go, for example, before an ICC tribunal, uh, you will see that uh, the tribunal has power to issue whatever measure it deems appropriate. Right. It means that one, it is a discretion as to which criteria you should fulfill to obtain the measure, and it is also a discretion as to the type of measures available, right. to the extent that they are, let's say, enforceable in a way, uh, and the tribunal cannot force a party to do something, of course, or fine a party, but it has some persuasive force right. uh, when it is issued. So, And this discretionary aspect opens the door to creativity.
0: What are your thoughts on a specific performance type of interim measure? Because in, in the US, an interim measure typically is some to prohibit and not necessarily to force someone to continue delivery or to make them fulfill a promise or whatever. Do you, do you think those are typically awarded or...?
2: It, it depends. It, it's actually it's, it's quite interesting what you say because it depends very much on legal traditions, mm-hmm. in my experience. At yeah. least. The, 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 the classic example Uh, is the big construction cases, uh, projects where you have a guarantee um, for the performance uh, of the contractor which could be uh, X percent of the amount uh, of the project itself sometimes 10% or 15% so these guarantees can be several dozens or hundreds of millions sometimes and they are very often let's say, drafted in um, what we call on-demand manner, uh, unrelated to the underlying dispute. Very often, it's sufficient either to allege defects, simply to allege, to Mm -hmm. call on the guarantee on the bond, or not at all. You can just call on the bond. So when the dispute arises, uh, very often the owner will have a temptation to call on the bond just to get some money um, and to put the other side in a difficult situation. Right. And before a court... Uh, generally, it will be U.S. courts, uh, English courts, French courts, whatever. But it's very difficult to, to prohibit the bank from paying. Right. But what a tribunal can do is prohibit a party from calling on the bond, which mm-hmm. is different. It's mm-hmm. a different thing. You have a jurisdiction about that party, and you say, yes, of course, you have the right to do it under the guarantee. But I'm asking you not to exercise that right. Right. Because... I will ask the other party to prolong, to extend the bond until the dispute is over. So I keep the status quo by maintaining the situation as it is. Right. In my experience, continental arbitrators are not about sweets, but continental <laughs> arbitrators will generally award that measure because it maintains the status quo. Right. English arbitrators sometimes have more difficulties because they think they have no jurisdiction to interfere with the, the bond itself mm-hmm. to start with. And second, they say, well, the parties didn't want to, the bond to be called. They shouldn't sign this kind of guarantees, except that very often it's a call and a tender and you have no opportunity to discuss the terms. So, right. so you have to do it if you want a project. So, And that is a prohibition, yeah. as you said. It's exactly. a, please don't do this. Right. Of course, the party is at liberty to do it if they yeah. want, but then they suffer consequences on the merits, or they might.
0: Right, uh, which okay. is, would just be an... Negative it's a bad inference. idea. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, a negative inference
2: or the tribunal may, may be badly disposed cost, uh, with yeah. a party that is disregarding its orders. Mm-hmm. It's it's very difficult as counsel for a party to advise, okay, tribunal has ordered to do this, but you can ignore it. Yeah. <laughs> it's <laughs> right. just a, it's a, okay. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm,
0: I'm really interested in enforcement, so I want to hold off yes. on that topic and put a pin in that in one second and talk about other types of measures that you've heard about or you've seen that, that have been atypical I would say and just to lead the conversation uh, this uh, Igor Boyko case where there was an interim measure to prevent further physical harm to the claimant uh, because they were dealing with it was the Ukraine in that case Um, that type I had never heard of where where now we have physical harm being being the interim uh, measure
2: it's uh, I think it's a way to tell a party um, please behave Mm -hmm. Uh, and of (laughs) course you are more specific by saying please avoid from uh, physically harm the claimant which uh, goes pretty far actually Um, I I'm not sure I would have drafted the order that way. Right. I would have been more general. <laughs> uh, but no, I'm not in the case. And don't know the specifics of the case. And there may be a good reason for that. Right. But, it, but it's a way to uh, tell the parties, you have accepted arbitration, which is a civilized and regulated way of settling dispute. Please play by the rules. Mm-hmm. That's essentially the message that is sent. Now, going to physical harm is um, more surprising. I mean, <laughs> I've had a case... Where the tribunal uh, requested the respondent the government in that particular case to uh, suspend criminal investigation against the claimant and to discontinue or suspend extradition proceedings because that claimant was in sure. case. Yeah. Yes, <laughs>
0: and that, that, that was very interesting. It was very interesting. Yes, because then your t- because those criminal cases were in different jurisdictions. They were in a f- yes in, in
2: the respondent's uh, host state jurisdiction. So okay. it was the host state right. having commenced criminal proceedings against our client mm. uh, on, on a variety of allegations. And the tribunal having asked them first to suspend, then they changed their mind later once the extradition uh, proceedings wa- was over. But it was right. over because English courts decided that it was an abusive process. Ah. So it was not only our tribunal okay. who decided that. <laughs> okay. Good thing so that that I can give you comfort about, let's say, the factual basis surrounding this particular request and the reason why uh, we obtained this particular remedy
0: right uh, and it's an, another distinction that you bring up is when you have a state because then the interim measures become much more the discretion becomes a bit wider for the tribunal to award a lot yes of and no
2: because you know, the, the the difficulty with governments uh, first uh, it depends on which rules you're operating under of course Absolutely. because as you know Uh, under ICSI, it technically is a recommendation Mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to an order, but of course, in practice, that recommendation carries as much weight as an order. Uh, If it is uh, over uh, the SEC, it could be an order. Uh, So uh, then you have to be careful in the way you frame your recommendation or your order. But then, of course, a a tribunal will always have in mind, let's say, the notion that if the order is impossible to respect, Uh, it's its own credibility and authority which is at stake. So if you issue an order which the government cannot respect, right. then uh, you put yourself in a situation where your authority uh, may be diminished eventually. So you don't want to be in a position where you issue a decision which cannot be respected. So right. you have to find a way which is compatible with the fact that it is a government on the other side. So it, it, yeah, you can go further because we have... Sovereign powers that they, you can curtail to some extent. Right. But at the same time, you have to take into account the fact that uh, it has to be acceptable uh, one way or another yeah. uh, to be enforced uh, yeah. to keep parties in the
0: game. Uh, it's a bit it's it's an art to draft these type of orders because then parties get very sophisticated on how they step around the orders yes. as, well.
1: Of <laughs> as well. No,
2: but I, I remember another case a long time ago in, in um, a commercial dispute, and the issue was. Uh, whether a contract that had been terminated was validly terminated uh, because the, the notice was given in a way which was allegedly defective. The tribunal ordered the continuation of the performance of the contract pending the arbitration, which was entirely within its powers. The mm-hmm. tribunal was sitting in France. Instead of saying, I have a discretion under the ICC rules and I consider that is it is in the interest of both parties to continue to perform, which would have been entirely acceptable. They said, I believe that the respondent has a very good case. Uh, The notice seems defective, prima facie. As a result, I order uh, the continuation of the contract of course I was on the other side i challenged the full tribunal saying you have prejudged the matter <laughs> <laughs> which is impermissible under the, the european <laughs> convention of human rights etc as uh, interpreted by the french supreme court and therefore i want you out yeah uh, eventually know. we settled okay. <laughs> <laughs> so they were but it was a, it was purely a matter of drafting the, the the order in a way or another one way or another which could give rise to an objection or not absolutely so, so you have to be very careful yeah, as the, a tribunal exactly. and as counsel, of course in a way you ask Uh, your order to be drafted, because very often the the tribunal will take your proposal as a basis. So if the proposal is smart enough to get around, uh, then it will be accepted. Yeah,
0: yeah, definitely. Well, let's uh, dive into enforcement, because I think it is the the issue on the table, and as counsel, I've been frustrated that even when you you celebrate that you have the interim measure, then you realize how toothless um, that interim measure can be, both within the arbitration itself, and then when you take it to a court, um, I don't know if you have any experience or. Well,
2: uh, I, I have experience as an arbitrator of a case when it was a um, contract for the sale of iron ore between Brazil and Turkey, and, and the Turkish party had essentially blocked all the accounts of the Brazilian party in the US, mm-hmm. uh, saying this is a. Um, how do we call it? Um, certain type of claim, a naval claim, a marine claim, I can't remember oh, the exact okay. term, and therefore we are entitled okay. to have all the accounts blocked, mm. which was perfectly correct as a matter of U.S. law, except that the Brazilian party was a trader of metals and they couldn't trade in dollars anymore, which was a serious problem for them. Right. So, so it was completely disproportionate. Um, so the tribunal, all three of us, um, they were sitting with two, Q- two QCs, said, uh, yes, we understand you can... As a matter of you have obtained that remedy, so please tell us why you need it.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And the answer was, because I have a right. Okay, fine. But beyond okay. that. Right, right, so, right, And we never got a, a satisfactory answer, so we asked them to lift the measure. They didn't do it. The other side asked us to convert our order into an award, which we did. Mm-hmm. Then they attempted to enforce that award in the U.S., and then the matter settled. Wow. So even though it's not enforced as such, if you are, let's say, firm enough uh, with your measure, right. and if the measure is reasonable, of course, uh, it could lead to an early settlement. So, so it's not an answer to your question of enforcement, no, but it, but yeah. it's a question uh, of uh, let's say it, it can produce a useful effect, uh, even though it's not enforced as such.
0: Right. because uh, well, that is my question: How do you yeah. deal with the frustration of an unenforceable document? And the the answer is that well, you can try
2: to convert it into an enforceable document. Some jurisdictions will accept it; exactly. others will not. Yeah. Uh, And also, you can, um, let's say, go back to the tribunal, and if you have a tribunal with a chair that uh, that is strong, uh, arbitrators that are strong, they can convene a hearing Mm -hmm. and tell the parties, are you sure you don't want to comply with my order? (laughs) (laughs) Of course, that's not the way you present it. That's essentially the question you ask. And then, very often, you can get a stipulation or, or, you know, an undertaking, I'm not complying, but I will do what I can, et cetera. I mean, that, that's, and you can get something. Right.
0: Well, as I mean, as an arbitrator, when you're trying to preserve the status quo, do you force the parties to be vigilant on keeping this? If, let's say there's an interim measure effect that requires the party to not aggravate the dispute yeah. for whatever reason, uh, and then you have comp- consistent what the claimant or the, you know, the party opposing or who has the interim measure consistently complaining that they're still aggravating the dispute. Do you, um, as an arbitrator, kind of take it into your hands to regulate that problem, or do you just follow your order as as originally written?
2: It, it's a difficult, abstract question. Yeah, but yeah um, I know. But the answer <laughs> would be, uh, and it's no criticism to the Gramercy Tribunal, because I don't know the case, but mm-hmm. normally I would not issue a general order not to aggravate the dispute because precisely right. you end up in a situation that you describe which is this aggravates the dispute, this uh, is an aggravation of the dispute, this is not, etc. Right. So normally what you do is you say, okay, you don't do this mm. which is as precise as possible and it's open to the parties to come back to you with a new request saying, no, they, they don't do this anymore but no, they do that. Right. Uh, and if they do that, then you decide on the that uh, and then you can decide again. So <laughs> you issue many... Decisions, but at the very least, they are specific, case specific, because I I do not believe a lot in very, let's say, in decisions drafted in broad terms, which can only push the dispute back or forward, actually, in time uh, for the parties. So it doesn't
0: help uh,
2: that that kind of decision. So,
0: I mean, we went all the way to yeah. the end of the dispute. Now I want to go all the way to the beginning. What do you think about emergency? The introduction of emergency arbitration as an interim measure.
2: I, I believe it's a it's a fantastic tool. Yeah, uh, really. I, uh, I I believe I'm very. Um, grateful to all many arbitral institutions to have introduced that mechanism, particularly mm-hmm. here in Sweden. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here in Sweden, uh, unlike the ICC, it's also available for treaty disputes, which is a good thing. Um, tough, uh, tough, uh, tough, tough, but a good thing. Tough, but a good thing. <laughs> uh, um, I believe it promotes settlement. To, to, to go to the bottom line, mm-hmm. uh, if you have a, a good emergency arbitrator who takes charge mm-hmm. uh, and gives guidance um, again on interim measures issue only, Uh, Within one month, one and a half month, then the parties are sort of confronted to reality. It's a reality check Mm -hmm. uh, that comes much, much earlier than the the really hearing in the arbitration. Because you have express submission, sometimes hearing, and you get a decision. And that reality check will very often prompt settlement discussions because the parties are back on earth. Yeah, so, and I believe it's a fantastic tool to promote settlement. Uh, and it does. I've, I've so had I, a case. I,
0: yes, I've had a case and I went right to settlement because I said, "Oh, I didn't know. I didn't know that's what you wanted." Was basically the yes. reaction of the other exactly. party. It's exactly. a twenty-five thousand euro uh, promotion of settlement, <laughs> but it but it can definitely work. You put and in it's, some it's good pretty exhibit. Cheap. Yeah, if <laughs> yeah. you, you compare to the cost of it. it's it's a it's couple it's hours it's of your work. Like, huh? No, it's not <laughs> my, my work, but it's just.
2: Uh, when you think about major disputes, it's it's inexpensive, yeah. uh, and it's worth trying it. So, um, no, no, it's, um, it's quite interesting. And also, the, the many institutions will be open to, let's say, a phone call, a heads-up, saying, I might have an emergency arbitrator request. Mm-hmm. Uh, please start looking for somebody. Many institutions will accept We've that. have done that, yeah. yeah, yeah of, of course, everybody's done that. Mm-hmm. So it means that it works because when you file your request, uh, within 24 hours, you have an emergency arbitrator, which yeah. is great, probably yeah. Also, the emergency arbitrator, uh, again, it's not the panacea, but it has, as as, I would say, omnes everywhere uh, mm-hmm. because it directs the parties to do or not to do something. If you have a situation which is replicated in many jurisdictions, possibly because one problem, uh, let's say, uh, I don't know, you, you modify contracts uh, with various subcontractors. Uh, in a way which we create a fait accompli uh, mm. and you want to stop that, uh, you cannot go in 10, 20 jurisdictions at no. the same time to block the situation. So the only way is to have somebody telling the parties at the top, please stop doing that. Right,
0: right, 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 right. That makes sense. You give, you give a good case for it. Yeah. I mean, with the, I just think arbitration now has become how many tools do you have in your toolbox? I said that at the beginning. Uh, tactics have become as annulments become bigger, and you know, challenges mm-hmm. to enforcement become so big, and that interim measures has now become another toolbox for a party that can pay for it. But I think it does have its place, and I think it... No,
2: I, I would agree, and, and again, for, for me, the most important aspect is that you may agree or disagree on the tactical use of interim measures, mm-hmm. but it does promote settlement. Yeah, that, That's for sure.
0: Uh, so, it's a good thing for businesses, Absolutely. Generally. Well, thank you. Thank you for joining us. (laughs) My pleasure. uh, And taking us deeper into this very complex issue. But uh, until next time. Okay. Oh, that sounds good
1: (laughs) all right so when we were in london a few weeks ago we ended up in the discussion and i said in a provocative tone and let me just say for the record this is not what i think but it's my take on what most arbitration lawyers think so this is my analysis is that we think that we are better than local lawyers the people we went to law school with because we sort of moved on beyond the local plane we speak more languages and we travel more and we do more sexy stuff so we tend to look down a little bit on them and instead we found a new community of like-minded people who also speak several languages and who also travel and you know do all the the fun thing that fun things that come with arbitration and this was a sentiment obviously that people reacted to including you my friend brian Carrick, because you're a good person <laughs> try to be <laughs> And uh, I've been thinking about that a little bit because I think there is some truth to it, although, of course, there was significant pushback and you wouldn't get anybody to agree on or off the record that this is the case. I think we uh, we tend to uh, position ourselves against local lawyers and the discussion topic for now, uh, I think, is the people who are sort of in between the arbitration lawyers who work primarily with arbitration in a domestic context. Mm hmm. So people who aren't uh, high-flying lead counsel in multinational multinational cases necessarily, although they do have the capability and the competence to do it, but who work on a local market instead. Right. Which I guess maybe uh, your former firm would disagree, but you have somehow, at least to a certain extent, moved now from more of a local slash regional firm and to an international firm. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that statement. So you, you have now transitioned fully to the international plane. Do, do you guys have firms? Sorry, do you have offices? Does your firm have offices in like local markets?
0: Yeah, uh, we have offices. You mean in local markets? What do you mean by local markets? Yeah,
1: you know, I mean, do you have uh, arbitration people working outside of all the hubs that we know of? Yeah, yeah. We have Paris, London,
0: Hong Kong, Shanghai um, and Dubai in you know and then we have everywhere in the us
1: okay yeah i, I realized this was a stupid question because the answer is yes and no basically and right. i was more thinking do you do you have an office you know it, can you handle an arbitration and obscure jurisdiction x but in that scenario you retain local counsel, i guess
0: yeah, I mean, we do when we have when you have an obscure jurisdiction, let's say you know Mongolia, and you need to have a case arbitrated there or under Mongolian law, you would definitely have to retain local counsel.
1: Right, and these are the people that I'm interested in, and that Dimitri suggested we talk about as well. Uh, what what do they do, and how do they do it, and in what scenario do you uh, retain them? We did. I touched upon this when I spoke to Lucas Mestelis uh, way back when I think in the first episode of the second season about these uh, connections between law firms, how the uh, the biosphere of arbitration law firms, what it looks like that you have uh, a tier of truly international firms and then it sort of seeps down in a, in a pyramid where they also use other kinds of law firms in established relationships. So American or English big firm X only works with Swedish or uh, Chinese firm Y right. all the time when they have cases. And you do that because you need somebody who speaks the language, who knows the court uh, procedures and who knows the market and so on and so forth, right?
0: Yeah, review documents, sit at the hearing, listen to translation. I mean, it, it can
1: vary depending on the case. Yeah, but I still, from time to time I see, and I think your former Stockholm firm is an an example of this, that is not only at the sort of post-award stage, i.e. challenges and enforcement, but you sometimes see, or often actually see firms like that, you know, on the awards as co-counsel in the actual international arbitration as well, or is that uh, uh, just based on my limited experience?
0: No, 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 you're definitely right. Uh, And it usually has to do with maybe maybe a firm requires backup, like the case is just too big for the original firm, or that there's an element to the case that requires expertise from another jurisdiction, or the client is just paranoid and wants to lawyer up.
1: (laughs) And then you take lawyers from cheaper places than London, New York, and Paris. Ah, exactly. That's also the case. Because I guess that's part of it as well. And I, and obviously, this is the reason I'm trying to sort of punch upwards and, and poke fun on of, of arbitration lawyers, international arbitration lawyers, is that they are the most expensive lawyers. So they can afford to get some criticism for being snobby and elitist. Right. Which is also, I think, uh, you know, confirmation bias-wise from my perspective. That is why people are annoyed. When they hear that they look down on local lawyers, they feel like they don't want to be the snobby elitist that they are, that you are. Yeah.
0: I feel like, just to touch on this point, I feel like the snobbery comes from the fact that a local lawyer is a, an expert in a specific type of law in this one jurisdiction. And as an international arbitration lawyer, you need to be an, not an expert, but you need to be conversant in different different jurisdictions laws on very specific points. And you need to kind of know, and obviously this is fed to you from local counsel or from the client if they have good in-house counsel. But for you as an advocate to be able to digest and regurgitate in a coherent way that is persuasive and also substantiated, jurisdictions laws, I mean, you'll have five pending cases under five different substantive laws. Um, That's where I think a little bit of the elitist Elite of them mm. comes from.
1: That is true. Shit. Of course, I could count on you to nuance my simplifications. <laughs> but I, I was or trying snobs. Make... <laughs> No, but I was, I was also trying to make the case that in, in many cases, the local lawyers are the best lawyers. Uh, be, because they have the developed expertise and they they do so much more litigation and develop uh, an, an expertise in sort of one jurisdiction. But of course, the flip side of that is that arbitration lawyers who work on an international level primarily right. they have, as you say, to be able to to, uh, to juggle several things at the same time and to be conversant in different jurisdictions. And it's it's a different skill set. Not necessarily that they are better or worse lawyers. It's just a different kind of lawyering, I guess. Exactly. I mean, it's conversant
0: versus expertise, right? So the second that they live Lift the veil on the one thing that you have researched, on the one like minutia of this type of law, uh, then you're completely ignorant, and then you really need the local council to step in. Or if they, if you present an element, an interpretation of the law, which is usually coming from local council, right? I mean, you're or like a local expert. You you don't know, and and your research isn't going to lead you to the to the extent of the discussion that it needs to be on your own. You need to have someone else helping you, whether it's an expert or local counselor or otherwise. But if you're advocating, and that's the difference, right? It's like the level of expertise you need to know in order to present the case, but the second the tribunal pushes back or the opposing side says that's not true, then you're cut caught with your thumb
1: in in the nether regions
0: of your body. <laughs> nice.
1: <laughs> we don't have to use the explicit E for this episode. Right, exactly. But nice safe. <laughs> so would it be um market wise, would it make sense to try to staff up a firm in in internally with as many jurisdictions as possible in order to avoid retaining the local council expertise because i know the reason i ask you about your firm is that i know some of the major firms they have uh you know very small uh offices and and less frequently uh useful seats for for arbitration work at least and i sort of had this sense that that is because they want to keep things in-house and have you know as much of the competence as possible retained within the firm whereas the the more common approach seems to be the one that you're talking about, that you have your local lawyers that you work with who are independent, but you use them when you need them on sort of a case-by-case basis.
0: Yeah. I mean, you can't really staff up your firm with people from Nicaragua just in case you get a Nicaraguan case, but...
1: Um, no, but I mean, couldn't you, this is obviously now speculating uh, without any kind of business acumen whatsoever, but in this world where you have people who are dual or even triple qualified, couldn't you in theory not, of course, cover every obscure jurisdiction, but as a goal, if you're a small boutique firm with an international profile, and as a matter of policy, you could only hire associates who, who could practice or be fluent in several jurisdictions. And then if you have right. 30 lawyers, you cover 60 jurisdictions easily.
0: Yeah, I mean... I, but, you know, I'm a purist as far as international is concerned. Like, I think that it you only benefit the more international you are. Um, I never even practiced substantively in my own jurisdiction other than, like, internships. So, like, I'm definitely an advocate that everyone needs to be completely international. But... Um, I, there are some people that don't think that they think that being a generalist is not useful. And if you're a firm filled with generalists, then you're, I mean, yeah, you're piecemeal of, you have a piecemeal expertise, but you're the firm itself. No one's going to hire your firm for a specific reason. They're just going to know that you have the widest reach. Um, Mm. And I think, but I think you're, but I personally, I would agree with you. I think that the more people, the more jurisdictions you cover, the better. And if you have someone that is, Russian, but French qualified. I mean, that's incredible because then they can review documents and analyze legal texts in Russian, even though they're not qualified there. But they're still fluent and qualified in in French. So, right,
1: right. But they would still, I guess, be sort of alone. And if you have a court case in Russia that's uh, in connection with the arbitration, you'd rather use a Russian law firm with all the. Uh, in-house expertise and built-up know-how that a firm has that a uh, dual-qualified 29-year-old uh, right. wouldn't have. Yeah, this is on on the uh, your your point on expertise or general focus. I spoke to a friend who had a, a case involving a state, and uh, they said that uh, an expert was uh, or an expert report was submitted from sort of the preeminent. You know, professor of international law, like a big, big figure, the, exactly the kind of person you want as an expert who is, who is well-established and has written 5,000 books. But uh, that expert in question was not called upon to testify on international law, but on local law from his her home jurisdiction. And then opposing counsel on cross very effectively just started by asking, "Okay, so when was the last time you were in court? Right. Ah, right. right, 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 right. Uh, yeah, 1972. Okay, thank you very much. <laughs> Only right. A few questions on that point, like just to establish that this is somebody who has, you know, been involved in drafting all the uh, major instruments of international law, but in practice has very, very limited connection to the local jurisdiction. So there's no point in having him or her as an expert on local law because that's not his or her expertise. It's better to ask, you know. Any random person who litigates right. domestic, domestic court cases on a regular basis.
0: Yeah. I And I think it's going to depend on the client, whether they hire an expert on the local law or they hire a local firm. Um, bet, depending on what the team's capacity is, I think. So um, I think it is useful to hire experts like the one h- hired for... For you, but obviously you need to vet your expert to make sure that they're they're competent in what they're discussing.
1: Um, yeah, that is right, and that they meet the, the standards of the elite group of international arbitration lawyers that they are good enough exactly. for international arbitration. But I mean, you can hire
0: like a supreme, an ex supreme court justice of that specific jurisdiction to talk about constitutional law issues, right? I mean, you can right yeah you can bring up that though that type of person, and then if you have someone, let's say you you have a case that's um, in a Spanish speaking country. You don't need local counsel if the case doesn't really hinge on an extensive interpretation of, of local law. But even then, you could just hire a local law expert uh, and and have your Spanish-speaking members of your team in your firm deal with the case. Because really, it's just doc review, um, yeah. discussions with clients, like meeting up with them and uh, kind of giving you like context to the case that's kind of what a local a local firm does
1: okay so let's all agree that local lawyers and international lawyers are all all good nice people (laughs) with different but equal (laughs) skill sets oh sweden sweden everybody's equal (laughs) I think that's it for us now. Please send in your defective slash funny arbitration clauses uh, to the arbitration station at gmail dot com. Uh, Thank you to Calum Agnew for his excellent reportage on corruption. Exactly, and thank you, Luke Eric Peterson, an investment arbitration reporter, and thank you Brian Koddick for making us record this two hours before we have to publish it.:
0: <laughs> Well, now it's on me to edit this beast. <laughs> um, but yes, thank you for being flexible, like a true arbitration lawyer.
1: well, I, it, it pains me to say this, but paid work has to take precedent over podcasting.: I know. I'll give you a kickback of my salary for for waiting. Okay, oh, and it's on air. Perfect. <laughs> Pakasun Samanda. I'm a Pakasun Samanda kind of guy. I'm a I'm gonna hold you to Samanda kind of guy, man. <laughs> All right, All right see take me. care, Brian, and uh, get better. Bye-bye. Bye.